0: The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations-China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. Good afternoon. This is Steve Worlens, president of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm joined today by James Stent who has just written a book called China's Banking Transformation, The Untold Story. James, this is, I guess, the first time you've written a book? It is. Because you were a professional banker.
1: That's correct.
0: So unlike a lot of our authors who have written many books, this is one which is really a banker's perspective on Chinese banking. And as our listeners know, I'm very fond of folks who question the common wisdom, and this book really does question the common wisdom, and I think very, very um, astutely. So
1: tell us first why you wrote the book and why now. Well, I had the uh, privilege of serving as the only foreign independent director uh, on the boards of directors of successively two Chinese banks, the uh, China Minsheng Bank and the China Everbright Bank, and during that period I witnessed and was a minor participant in this extraordinary transformation of Chinese banks from uh, essentially cashiers of the old planned economy into modern well-run commercial banks. So while I was watching that I was also reading the uh, foreign mainstream commentariat consensus which was skeptical and often downright negative on Chinese banks was describing them as fragile, awash in bad debt, uh, and about to precipitate a banking crisis that might bring down the entire economy. Well, this narrative was totally out of sync with the realities of what I was seeing on the ground. And I decided that there was a real vacuum in the literature. Nobody had written a balanced account, and I decided this would be my task. And tell us why you differed
0: from the consensus.
1: Well, basically because of the realities I was seeing within the banks. I saw that they... And you spent 13 years at, thirteen as, years as an independent and, director
0: of two banks.
1: Correct. And during that period, uh, uh, I was chairman of the audit committee for six years of the China Everbright Bank and served on all the board committees. So it gave me uh, an extraordinary opportunity to understand how the banks worked, how they did transform, how the people thought how they controlled things, how they worked out the problems they inherited, etc. And that's the untold story that I tell. But beyond that, I realized as I was writing the book that it still wasn't enough, that I could tell all of that story and still not be convincing, because Chinese banks are ultimately what I call hybrid banks. They operate in a fundamentally different way from the model of banking that we are accustomed to. Why is that? It arises ultimately out of a different culture, a culture that values collective as opposed to the individual. And this uh, then causes the political economy of China to be very, very different from the Western. And uh, it's it's the fact that the Chinese banks are embedded in a different political economy that makes them difficult for Westerners to understand. So I use this book as a case study on... How not only the banking system has transformed and works today, but also on how the political economy works and how it differs from the American model, you have kind of very
0: interesting section on Chinese culture and tradition and Confucianism and how it affects the banking system. How do you compare the Chinese banks? In in other words, one would say, so in Taiwan, they had the same culture, the same tradition. Obviously, they don't have state participation in the
1: economy. What are the differences between the banks in China and the banks in Taiwan today? Well, I can't really answer that, Steve, because I I don't know much. I will admit, I don't know much about the Taiwan banks. But I will point out that in an earlier period in Taiwan, Uh, there was heavy state involvement in the uh, Taiwanese economy and state ownership of the banks. And if you trace back to the Kuomintang predecessor to the Taiwan uh, uh, government, back to the 1920s and 30s, the model of banking that was uh, used in the Republican period was remarkably similar to the model right. that is used uh, in the present under the present regime on the mainland, showing that what we're talking about is not really a communist model. It's a Chinese model, uh, but not even entirely a Chinese model. It shares much in common with how banks were used in the Meiji Restoration, in post-war Japan's reconstruction, in uh, Korea's development from a poor country into an OECD country uh, under Park Jong-hee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You talk about kind of the role of the party
0: in the in the banks, and you talk about the role of the organization department of the Chinese Communist Party and the appointment of the CEOs of virtually all the big banks in China, first, second, and, and to some degree the third-tier banks. How does that affect, how does that give the party control?
1: Well, um... I I compare it a little bit to serving in, say, the American State Department or the U.S. military or in a giant multinational like, say, IBM, that uh, people have a particular job they are assigned to do for a period of time. Uh, say you were assigned to be a consular officer in a particular country and then you are rotated to you were developed, you are rotated to be a political officer in another country, and ultimately you hope to be appointed to be an ambassador of the United States to another country. And similarly with if you were a party member who has developed financial expertise, you rotate between jobs, not necessarily entirely in the banking sector. If you take Guo Qing, the present head of the regulatory authority, he was rotated out to be uh, governor of Shandong province right. to give him some provincial experience as well before he was brought back into his basic core competence area of uh, banking as the head of the CBRC and so ultimately these people all are not only party members but their career is with the party and the party decides where they can be best used uh, in working within banks. So, ha-
0: so you're saying if basically if these CEOs are not following party dictates, they're not going to get promoted, or they're going to get shifted into a less um, fulfilling job.
1: I would say, uh, I would put it slightly different. I would say part of being a party member is to be a team player. And uh, if you are the chairman of a major Wall Street bank, or the the CEO of a major Wall Street bank, then you have one principal obligation: make profits on the bottom line, build shareholder value. But if you are the CEO of a Chinese bank, you have a dual responsibility. This is part of the whole hybrid banking concept. You have to deliver uh, good results on the bottom line to the shareholders. That's how your efficiency as a CEO is measured. But in addition, you have to support the National Economic Development Plans because the banks exist not only to generate profits for the shareholders, which is the government generally, but also to be key players in the development of the country in the whole economic development program book is obviously highly complimentary of the
0: of the developments in the Chinese system. I mean, I would say the overall theme is it's really pretty complimentary. And you're arguing that the outside world doesn't understand the amount of progress that has been made. What do you think of the recent downgrade
1: uh, of the Chinese credit by Moody's? By Moody's. Well, I, I I think I should send Moody's my book. So I think thing. you should. Um, but. Uh, I don't want to criticize their downgrade, but again, I think that... Why not? um, It's okay. Well, (laughs) (laughs) I used to do it all the time. (laughs) uh, I think they don't understand how the Chinese political economy differs from uh, the uh, market capitalist economy of America. I think they also underappreciate the ability of the government to sort out problems, the problems that are... Uh, adduced in the Chinese banking system each year are all real. Uh, The Chinese don't deny them at all. However, they are extraordinarily um, flexible and pragmatic in coming up solutions to problems. So when you look at the uh, negative narrative on Chinese banks, each year there is what I call a sort of flavor of the month that people think is going to cause problems with the banks. One year it will be the so-called housing bubble uh, and ghost cities. Another year it will be the local government debt. Uh, The current flavor of the month is the overall um, uh, debt-to-GDP ratio, particularly within the corporate sector. But if you look back over the years, each one of these problems is acknowledged by the government and measures are developed quite effectively to deal with these problems. For example the local government debt uh, back in 2011-2012, a lot of people expected local governments to default on some of their obligations. Uh, These problems were handled quite easily, and one doesn't hear people worrying about it. Uh, Maturities were extended to more reasonable periods of repayment on the debt, Um, and now there are plans to allow uh, to, to, to implement fiscal reform in the local governments which will permit local governments to issue bonds, which will then repay the bank debt. And indeed, long-term bonds are the appropriate uh, financial instruments to finance the sort of infrastructure projects that local governments are borrowing money to do. You kind of end the book talking about
0: financial reform and kind of coming out, pretty reserved about the possibility of major reform in the Chinese system. Kind of, They're going to kind of maintain what they're doing, because actually it's working pretty well. Is that a
1: fair kind of reading of the, the final portion of the book? I would reword it slightly. I think the, the basic uh, mechanisms of the political economy are in place for some years to come. They will still be appropriate uh, for... Uh, the next few years of China's development. As China goes up into the ranks of upper-income country, um, it's quite possible that uh, the basic mechanisms will come under review. But uh, specifically on the non-banking portion of the financial system, I think this is an area where major reform is necessary. And I think this is recognized, specifically uh, uh, the equity markets. Uh, So, in other words, creating a real bond market. A real bond market, a a credible uh, equity market, which would be credible not only for people to raise funds in, but for Chinese savers to put their money in as an alternative to the banks. I think venture capital needs to be uh, greatly improved. Uh, The insurance uh, industry, all of these areas that lie outside of the formal banking sector, uh and this would include then the so-called shadow banking sector i think shadow banking uh sometimes uh, the the risks that are sounds posed, very dark it, it sounds very dark that shouldn't sound so dark. Uh, it shouldn't it's a rather sinister as sounding. an
0: investor in some what they call shadow banking it's not dark it's actually a <laughs> nice provision of 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 credit to
1: segments <laughs> of the economy that can't get it otherwise so, exactly so. exactly yeah it's a good thing Uh, But it does need better regulation than you have today. Uh, P2P lending is a very good thing. It's going to offer immense benefits. A large area of fintech, where China is the world leader, offers great benefits. But they also pose new risks that no country in the world really has effectively dealt with yet. So all of these will be areas where I think the Chinese government, over the next five to ten years, has to undertake the same sort of transformational changes that they did in the banking sector. Well, we've run out of time. Uh, you can watch the full video
0: or get this book, China's Banking Transformation, The Untold Story. It really is an insider's view of the banking system. You will learn a ton about it, and it really teaches you that often the consensus on China is not consistent with the facts. But James, thank you so much for writing the book. I think it is a major contribution to the way we should think about China's economy and banking sector. And thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Steve.